Right, let's turn to the first part of today's brunch program, and that is Trash Talk. So this week on Trash Talk, Marcy Trent Long speaks to Helga Vantenot of Wealth of Floats Consulting, and also Jeffrey O'Rourke, who is a plastic recycling investor in Asia, and they'll be discussing whether Hong Kong will return to being an international hub for plastic waste recycling. Hey, Trash Talk listeners, you know, before 2017, Hong Kong was an international hub for unsorted plastic waste. It wasn't quite a badge of honor, really, though, because we brokered unsorted plastic waste imported from the United States and other wealthy countries on its way into China, where they would sort it and recycle it. But China changed all that with its national sword policy by blocking plastic and other waste imports into China. Move forward to 2022, Hong Kong has a new state-of-the-art mechanical recycling plant, and it handles PET and HDPE, which are the two most common types of disposable plastic that we use. So the question for today is, can Hong Kong return to being an international hub for plastic waste recycling? And can we extend to recycling the other types of plastics that aren't PET and HDPE? PPE. With us today to talk about it is Helga Van Turnet of Wealth of Flows Consulting and Jeffrey O'Rourke, plastic recycling investor in Asia. Welcome to the show, you guys. Hi, Marcy. Thank you. <laughs> well, now that we have this great PET and HDPE recycling plant, what about the recycling of other plastics in Hong Kong? Well, we have here in Hong Kong not only our uh, Rolls Royce of a processing plant that we have now for PT and uh, HGPE. <laughs> we do have a number of other facilities and have had for quite a while a number of other facilities that can process a diversity of plastics. And when I say process, we have to understand that the very first step that needs to happen is that the um, plastics need to be sorted out. So first of all, we need to have plastics only. That may or may not be the case, uh, depending on how we have collected them. And we can come back to that later, I think. Um, but then when we have a plastic stream, um, the more we can have a separation of the different types of plastics or the, the resins, as we could call them, uh, the more value we can create from that. That is because most of the recycling processes that these will go into are mechanical recycling processes, and they they will you know take the the, the waste plastic of a specific kind and then put them back into um, either flakes or um, uh, pellets, depending on how far the processing goes here in right. Hong Kong. And then those can be put back into uh, an industrial process. They will typically go to a compounder that will mix them and match them for the specific application that um, somebody's interested in. Now, um, what we... So, so, so the value creation, what we weren't so good at here in Hong Kong in the past was, was, was going beyond um, the initial sorting, right? And, and most of it, and even the initial sorting was uh, not always that great or that high value add. And as you had pointed out in your introduction, most of it just went straight to, um, to China. But now we do have the ability also to um, do the processing, sorry, do the sorting and in many cases do the flake production and even the pellet production um, here locally. Right, which means that you can take that pellet and then you can, at least for the PET, put it into another 
PET bottle. So you can go for full cycle, right? Yeah. So for 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 the yes for the Hong Kong facility that we have for for PET uh, processing, we can uh, that facility can put it back into food grade, what you would call food grade uh, quality. Um, but um, that's not the case for for most of the other resins. And exactly. it's also you, you would only do that. You know, you can say, well, why don't we invest in doing that? We would we would do that if there is um, a, a demand for it or a clear pathway. But most of the other plastics have a much broader set of applications. So it's also, in any case, from a marketing, like a downstream perspective, less clear that they would go back into food grade anyway. Right. Okay. Well, that's where, when we use the term investment, that's where we turn back over into Jeffrey. So is it possible to think about, you know, the, you know, recycling the other plastics as well? Is that profitable these days or? No, it, it can be, it, it, you know, there's a lot of criteria and certainly if, you know, in the first place, if resins such as PET and HDP can be recycled mechanically, that's the best outcome. It's the lowest energy intensity in terms of recycling, et cetera. It's, you know, our business is less about that and or things we invest in are more about, um, about uh, dealing with those other plastics. So the um, flexible plastics, mixed plastic waste, um, waste that would otherwise uh, be in, you know, in some markets incinerated or wind up in landfills. And so if it can't be mechanically recycled, there's definitely an opportunity to, to do what's called chemical recycling. But that depends again on having the right amount of land and the facilities and also the relationships with the mechanical recyclers who have a role to play in terms of, um, you know, the, the plastic that the things that we are investing in um, the plastics that we get have been mechanically sorted and washed and cleaned. And that's a mechanical process that um, is is a prerequisite for the chemical process. Okay, got it. Yeah, actually, when we looked at that uh, a few years ago um, uh, at McKinsey, then indeed the, the best scenario for, for you know, a, a most viable uh, industrial setup for plastics recycling was indeed that combination of mechanical and chemical recycling so so um, not um, not purely the chemical recycling because you do need that removal of certain um, certain uh, uh, types of plastic and you, you need to create the maximum value um, from those specific resins right but let's talk a little bit about feedstock right because then it gets a little bit complicated and we're we're just learning in hong kong how to Geez, just how to separate plastic from cans, right? I mean, <laughs> you look in the, that's the big discussion is you look in the waste, the plastic recycling bin, and it's full of everything but plastic. So how would you be able to feedstock your way into having two plants? So the, there's two different philosophies on how you create feedstock for recycling. The one is, the purer you can keep it from the beginning, the more value preservation you have, and therefore the better your case for recycling. Um, so if I have, if I as a consumer keep the cans, the, the liquid cartons, the hard plastics, the soft plastics, and maybe within my, you know, plastics, some different further differentiation, maybe my, my, my um, beverage bottles separate from other types of hard plastics and so on. If I can do that, and if every step that comes after me as a consumer, um, you know, follows that same separation, 
that's how I create more most value. And some countries pursue that quite quite heavily. And when I lived in Switzerland, I had twelve different fractions that I was separating out at home. Uh, it was like living in a junkyard, I guess. But um, but but that <laughs> obviously demands a lot of dedication. It, it demands a lot of awareness and 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 information um, that is shared with the with the consumers. It's quite an effort for the consumer um, themselves. Um, and so it doesn't always work that well. You need to have a quite persistent education effort and, and, and all of the systems need to be geared towards that for that to work um, well. But that's kind of the philosophy that, that uh, um, European uh, government like to follow um, and has encouraged national governments to uh, go for more uh, source separation, as it is called. Then there's another philosophy that says, look, we can't count on the consumer to do a good job there or a good enough job. And if we cannot get all of it, then why bother getting any of it it's through that scenario? So why don't we just ask the consumer to put either, you know, put all the recyclables together and we'll do the sorting somewhere else which at what is typically called a, a materials recovery facility, uh, a MRF. MRF. Um, or there's even, a, you know, a more extreme scenario where say, we're not even going to ask the consumer to pull it out of, um, out of the general waste stream just leave it in and then we'll have what is called a dirty MRF uh, in wow. industry parlay. Um, so to say, we'll pull it out at, at the plant. And it sounds pretty crazy. It is feasible, but again, it depends on what you're going for, volume or, or value. Yeah. Right? Because obviously there's a lot of value uh, destruction along the way. If you have your paper sitting against, against your wet banana peel, against you know some glass that's broken, mixed that in. Nice oily but, you know, some, some locations... Yeah, and so this is an entirely different philosophy. It's the one where we say we're going to, you know, lower the threshold as much as possible. Even the, the mixed recyclables, we're going to lower the threshold as much as possible for households to participate, so that we get as many, you know, as high of a volume as possible. If you do that, then your systems following need to be extremely good at recreating or retrieving some of that value. Okay, so but the the current plant that's set up now is taking plastics in general and sorting it out correct once it gets to the uh no the, you mean the the pt HPE one yeah they're only taking no, that, that only takes plastic bottles um of, made of pt or HPE, and it will take all plastic bottles you're right in that but they will sort out um bottles that are made of polypropylene or um polystyrene and, and what you'll see then is that for the polypropylene, there is a market and they will sort it out in a way that you can actually, you know, they will sell on the bales to, to other facilities. For polystyrene, it's quite hard because they're so rare. Um, so, it's, you know, unless you can join it with something entirely different, like the polystyrene from, from fridges, let's say, which gets sent to Europe, apparently, from here in Hong Kong. Um, it's really hard to make that work financially and, and you know, from a, from a footprint perspective. With mechanical recycling. So then to, to, to get to these other plastics in other countries, how, how do you see it happening in Asia? Well, I think that Asia is kind of a, a too, in a way too broad of a brush because, for <laughs> example, point. we're doing stuff in okay. Thailand where we have a lot of land. We have cheap, cheap labor. There's a really robust um, informal sector that scavenges things out. So, for example, by the time things get to the landfills in Thailand, the PET has been literally scavenged out of the of the waste stream because it's it's valuable enough to incentivize those people to do that. But 
here also in Asia, in Hong Kong, we don't have that land and we don't necessarily have the, the same uh, inexpensive labor. And so it's a different, and, and I, I think that you have to kind of um, bloom in the pot you're planted in, in the sense that if we're going to find a solution, for example, in Hong Kong, then we really need to think about the reality of Hong Kong. And so as Helga was saying, you know, you want to educate people. Well, that's a challenge everywhere. And I, I was just on a podcast the other day, maybe Helga, you were on this too, with, with somebody who's in charge of doing it in Sweden, where they're the most educated and the most aware, and they've been doing it for decades. And, and the woman was saying that it was a real educational problem there. And so education is kind of a constant problem and, and something one always needs to be doing. But um, to go from where we are in Hong Kong to a place where everybody's happily recycling everything according to the right uh, plastic types, I think is, is a long road. But yeah. I think that the, the, the bigger issues to me are things like um, people live in small spaces. They don't necessarily have the space for all these different bins. The buildings regulations and the buildings themselves weren't built um, to facilitate recycling at a building level. And are still um, not being built, I'd like to point out, right? <laughs> they haven't been, but current building code is still not addressing that, unfortunately. That is unfortunate. Exactly. And so, so it's, it's, it's at all levels, just in the individual units, it's in the, at the building level. My understanding is that each building kind of contracts its own um, service provider. So there's a sort of a free market, if you will, for, for the collection of from the buildings. And then if people are so conscientious and aware that they really think, oh, gosh, I should really take this to the recycling center. Where is that recycling center in the neighborhood? And is it close enough for them to walk to? Because you can't just chuck it in the back of your car and drive and and deal with it like a, a drive through, you know. Yeah, so the realities of Hong Kong are there and, and that's the pot we're planted in, you know, mm. so whatever solutions that we have have to kind of start from there. But I th what I think is maybe different on the downstream side, in other words, the market for recyclable materials, is that because a lot of the industry is under a tremendous amount of pressure, so the FMCG companies, the converters, the packagers, the um, petrochemical companies that produce these resins, they're all under a lot of pressure to do something about the waste stream and to, and to some extent have responsibility for that waste stream. And so what that effectively means is that they're willing to invest and to sponsor um, on a grant basis, on a commercial basis, on commercial terms, um, underwrite things. And that is different. I mean, I don't know that the technology has evolved that much, but I think that the, certainly the environment, the, the economic environment has evolved to a point where things are possible today that weren't possible five years ago. And so I think that what that ultimately really should mean is that more money goes into waste uh, management from those sources, these FMCG companies or these petrochemical companies. And it's a matter of us being able to funnel that money efficiently into supporting the collection uh, ecosystem. I, and I think that's really where the opportunity is. What about, what about the, the government as well? So, so is, is there anything that Hong Kong could do to attract uh, investors like you to maybe do more plastic recycling in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think that, you know, the, um, to the extent to which they, you know, there's refunds, I, I understand the refund scheme is coming through soon. That's probably more relevant to mechanical recycling than the stuff that we do, which is chemical recycling. But certainly it's stuff like that, that are, um, 
really putting either laws or incentives in place that demand or encourage different behaviors is super helpful. Also the land, you know, the, the land is always an issue in Hong Kong and to the extent that they can, you know, per, you know, each of our plants costs tens of millions of dollars and, and, you know, you can't just put that on a land where you have a lease for five years. You, you're talking about 10, 20 year leases and to be able to make long lease land available at affordable prices would be another thing that the government sh could probably right. help with. I mean, isn't that eco park? Um, yeah, and more of it. Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely extra land out there. It looks like to me, but anyway, I just wanted to say on so indeed the the deposit scheme for beverage for plastic beverage containers is um, not directly relevant to a create feedstock for a chemical recycling plant, but there's other pilots that have been run and are um, currently being conducted with. Um, all plastic schemes where in some of the districts uh, contractors are actually collecting every type of plastic not just the, the plastic bottles um, and also the um, the other government programs through the green uh, at community um, stations and shops and, and they all collect uh, all types of plastics uh, except for number seven um, and so they're creating streams of mixed plastics they're keeping the, the bottles out but uh, all the rest is there so that's that's another type of, of government uh, funded or an orchestrated activity that does generate an appropriate um, waste flow well so that that's the feedstock going we've talked about the feedstock going in talk about some of the things that the government mm -hmm. can do hopefully to encourage this next step in plastic recycling in Hong Kong and then the difficult part is the off takers, right? So if China's blocked waste imports, I don't know to at what point needs to be processed before it's decided as not a waste import. Uh, but it's not just that because you can't import it as waste. So the things we do here in Hong Kong would be suitable to drop the waste label, but you can also not use food grade PET for new food grade applications. So in China. that market is not that's accessible right. in China. Yeah. yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, Helga used the right word, which is an orchestra, uh, you know, or to orchestrate. I mean, we need kind of an orchestra of, of, of tools to address the problem. And and so I think on the upstream side about the, the locations, I, I, read a, I read a fun article from Paul Zimmerman in the SAMP about how they have all these wet markets that have empty space in them all around Hong Kong. And like, why can't you use those for recycling space? And I'm not exactly sure what the politics are of that are, but sometimes the solutions might be closer to closer to us than we think, you know? And, and so it's, I think, orchestrating those sort of things. And then on the downstream side, uh, my understanding is that there is, you know, from chemical recycling, the product is a recycled, pyrolysis oil and that the customer for that would be a petrochemical company with the right kind of facility to further process that to make the plastic circular in other words you're taking plastic chemically breaking it down to its original components and then get it feeding it back into the system so that it can be reused and the, but the, there's no facilities there's no petrochemical facilities that can handle that process in hong kong itself so in order to, to make chemical recycling viable in Hong Kong, there would have to be an understanding or some um, uh, concert with the 
with the national, the mainland government to to make sure that that was um, allowed to be uh, exported, you know, to or imported from their point of view to to a facility. And so there's there's plenty of facilities just down the road from Hong Kong and like Dai Bay and stuff that could handle this. And it's just a matter of whether we would be allowed to do that. And that probably needs some regulatory intervention. Right. Yeah. Well, it it everything's possible, right? You never know. Yeah, I mean, this fits this fits with some of the larger strategic agendas anyway, right? Around reindustrialization, around bigger, uh, larger collaborations with uh, within the Greater Bay Area. So, so it definitely fits with the overarching um, uh, agenda. It just needs to be uh, probably made, made clear enough on on how all these uh, pieces of the puzzle fit together. Yeah, elevated. Exactly. I mean, let's see if hopefully that can happen. I mean, they're they're definitely doing it with textiles here. We're definitely we're a leading research and textile recycling place here. Maybe not in volume, but let's call it in research. So um, maybe we can get the get the plastic recycling back again. That would be nice. That would be terrific. I think there must be a huge incentive. You know, it's it's a it's a, a significant component of the waste stream. And my understanding is that everything in Hong Kong is is pretty much landfilled. There's no incineration, or there's very little incineration, except for I think the biohazardous sort of stuff, the medical, and the medical stuff. So so it's like, what's the alternative? And and I guess the if the intention of the policy is to protect the environment, which I presume it is, then certainly this would seem like something that would need to be addressed. But but probably it takes a multi-pronged approach with business and, um, you know, significant business in interests and also government actively pursuing this to, to get a change. Yeah, I'm happy you're bringing up incineration, Jeffrey, because there is actually a risk there. So uh, you may not be aware yet, but the, the um, there is a, an incineration facility, a waste to energy facility in the making. Um, the risk is that if, you know, as we have seen in countries like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, if you build those facilities and they are dimensioned too amply that um, at some point you start running out of high calorific waste um, and then you start searching for it elsewhere, right? So, you know, if we're not careful, then we might end up with a scenario that looks a little bit like what we've been describing at the beginning, uh, i.e. plastics get imported into Hong Kong again, um, like in the old days, but they do not end up in a recycling facility in the mainland. They end up, or in a, in a petrochemical plant in the mainland, they end up in our incinerators because we're so desperate uh, to to have high utilization rates for our own uh, local facilities. And that we should avoid it at, at any cost. Oh, yeah, that's a very Well, I think, you point. know, in Thailand, in Southeast Asia, we have uh, cement, large cement factories. <laughs> That, that do ingest a tremendous amount of, of, of um, RDF and municipal waste and for exactly that purpose. And I guess the question is really that what's the best outcome? You know, so these are various, you know, there's trade you make, but certainly from my point of view, reducing the consumption is the very best outcome. Secondarily would be the mechanical recycling, which is the least energy intensive. And it, from our point of view, chemical recycling is then the next best thing. And then you go down from there. And, and to me, incineration is definitely not a desirable outcome. But I don't know enough about the local uh, rationale. No, I mean, for we looked at really it from comment. a carbon perspective 
Yeah, no, I mean, pure, pure incineration from a, from a carbon perspective, even with, you know, the heat or, or electricity recovery is, is a lot less uh, preferential to recycling. Um, you know, cement, coal incineration in the cement kiln is, is already a, a better option, but, you know, recycling, as you point out, is, is definitely preferential also from, not just from a materials perspective, but also from a carbon perspective. So there you go. So recycling it is. Well, Jeffrey and Helga, thank you guys so much for coming on and talking about this. We'll have to revisit it in a year and see if the needle has moved at all. But maybe maybe if the COVID world gets pushed aside, the government will have a little bit more time to focus on this. Hope so. It should. The future is coming. That's right. Be positive. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. You can find all the Trash Talk episodes on iTunes and the RTHK On The Go app. Thanks to our partners, Plastic Free Seas. If you like what you hear, I also host the Sustainable Asia podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube for a more in-depth look at sustainability issues here in Asia. Many thanks once again to Marcy for this week's Trash Talk, and she'll be back again next Monday. A quick